From the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. Each week, we present in-depth conversations with some of the biggest names in film. It's July 22nd, 2015. I'm Michael Odemark, one of the show's producers. Today, you'll hear a conversation with documentary filmmaker Joshua Oppenheimer, whose follow-up to 2014's Oscar-nominated The Act of Killing, called The Look of Silence, is now playing in select theaters. The Look of Silence is a companion piece to The Act of Killing. It again concerns the Indonesian genocide of 1965 to 1966, this time looking at it from the perspective of one of its survivors, an ophthalmologist named Adi. Oppenheimer follows Adi as he tracks down a number of retired torturers, under the guise of giving them eye exams, to confront them about their past deeds. The Look of Silence screened in the Spotlight on Documentary section of the 52nd New York Film Festival last fall, and we were thrilled to welcome Joshua Oppenheimer back to the Film Society in celebration of its theatrical release. The evening was part of our ongoing Free Talk series, which is sponsored by HBO. To find out about upcoming filmmaker talks and other events at the Film Society, check out filmlink.com. The conversation with Joshua Oppenheimer was moderated by Film Comment Senior Editor Nicholas Rapold. So let's go now to their conversation. Um, I thought maybe the way to start would be just to kind of frame how these two movies are related to each other. I guess a lot of people are here maybe because they've seen The Act of Killing or have read about it. Um, uh, So if you could kind of explain how The Act of Killing relates to The uh, Look of Silence. I see the two films as companion pieces to one another. I see them as completing one another. Um, I don't know, have any of you seen the uncut version of The Act of Killing, the so-called director's cut of the film? So a a few of you. It's out in the United States on Netflix as the director's cut. But outside, it's not really a director's cut because it's the original... Uh, an uncut film, whereas director's cuts are normally made later and out of regret. This is the actual complete film, and it was the release version, the theatrical version in most countries. But in the United States, because of the pressures on cinemas, we uh, decided to make a shorter version so that it would be seen by more people, at least part of the film. And the two, but together with the director's cut of The Act of Killing, I think the two films, I, or I hope the two films, form a whole whose greater... Uh, a whole which is greater than the sum of the parts. The two films, I would say, are about complementary aspects of impunity today. It's uh, tempting to see them as films about the 1965 genocide. I would say they are not. They're about what happens when perpetrators win, and in very specific ways. The act of killing, of course, deals with the lies, the stories, the fantasies, that the perpetrators tell themselves so that they can live with themselves and the terrible effects of those lies when imposed upon the whole society uh, in terms of corruption and thuggery and fear. Whereas The Look of Silence also deals with the present. It deals with the imminence of the past in the present, the question of what is it like for human beings to have to live in fear? What does it do to human beings to have to live for 50 years afraid, and specifically for survivors, to live surrounded by the still powerful men who killed their loved ones, unable to grieve, unable to mourn, and therefore trapped in a kind of prison of fear. The director's cut of The Act of Killing is cut through by these uh, abrupt cuts to silence, kind of haunted spaces where we feel uh, the presence, the closeness of ghosts, the unburied and unmourned dead. 
And uh, these are abrupt shifts in the perspective of the director's cut of the act of killing from the fantasies, the lies of the, 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 the person, also even the, the persona of the perpetrators to the to the absent victims, really, who haunt every frame of the film. And in The Look of Silence, we shot The Look of Silence after I'd edited The Act of Killing, but before it had its first screenings, at which point I knew I could not safely return to Indonesia. And I had already, even before I knew that I would follow a survivor as he confronts his brother's killers, I knew that I wanted to take the viewer and bring them into any one of these haunted silences that punctuate the director's cut of the act of killing and make you feel what would it be like to have to live there. Uh, I think the two films, if, if the act of killing, especially in its uncut version, is a kind of uh, fever dream. I don't even think it's a documentary anymore in its two-hour and 40-minute version. It's, it's something, it's non-fiction, but I think it's a new space that we're starting to open there. Um, if, if, that's, if the director's cut of The Act of Killing is a kind of fever dream where we get lost in the fantasies and lies of the perpetrators and, and taken into a kind of moral vacuum within this overall haunted space of post-genocide Indonesia, the look of silence maybe is a kind of poem, a poem, a, a visual poem, or at least I hope it is, a kind of poem in, in composed in memoriam to all that's been destroyed. Not just the dead, of course, who can never be wakened, the people killed in the genocide, but the lives broken by half a century of fear that can never be made whole again. And in, in that sense, the two films, I think, I hope, complete one another. I mean, the two films really complement each other as well in terms of the filmmaking choices you use in, in, in each of them. And what struck me just reviewing the look of silence, uh, or looking it over again, I mean, uh, was the sense of the film as, as giving you something that the act of killing um, was, wasn't yet giving you, uh, which is a reaction. Um, the act of killing, you follow these perpetrators and, and you see them act horrible things out. Um, and, and whenever I watched The Act of Killing, I was always think of, of you kind of reacting to this. Uh, uh, and the look of silence, you follow around the brother of someone who had been killed, um, and you get to see his reaction. A lot of the look of silence are, is just reaction shots. So I, I wonder if, if that was kind of part of uh, the thinking behind it. Yes. Um, in fact, when I saw a first rough cut to the of the look of silence, it was... Uh, in the summer, it was late in the autumn of 2013, uh, because I was editing The Look of Silence while I was traveling with The Act of Killing. When I saw a first rough cut of the film, it was, it was a very emotional experience for me, not because it was good, but because it embodied somehow my exp- all of the feelings, all of the sadness, all of the outrage, all of the anguish that I felt when I confront, encountered the, the ongoing power of the perpetrators and that motivated me really to do this whole project. And I think that the two films hold a mirror up to us where they ask us to see two things that, in a sense, I don't think you have to see them in this order, but they, there's a logical sense to seeing them in this order, in the sense that the, the act of killing forces us to confront impunity and atrocity, an atrocity where the perpetrators have won and the kind of uh, corrupt and rotten regime that they've built and, the lo- and, and 
really how we're all closer to perpetrators than we like to think, and therefore reflect, leading, inv inviting us at least to reflect on impunity and uh, the way power and myth-making and lies work in our own societies. And then in the second film, we confront the suffering that's excluded from view, how broken that, how torn that leaves our societies, how impossible it is to build, uh, how, how in order to build true community and therefore to have genuine democracy, because you can't have democracy without community and you can't have community when people are afraid of each other. And somehow the second film invites us to, to recognize how necessary it is how to stop turn around 180 degrees and not uh, and, and sort of overcome the way we're c compelled to always look to the future but to in fact look backwards and to accept the past and to, not in the sense of uh, making excuses for it on the contrary to not make excuses for it to try and understand and to uh, find the courage to accept so that we can turn back around and proceed into the future knowing ourselves and so that one can begin to build community because you have an acknowledgement of the violence that, that excludes so many people. I, I'm speaking in deliberately sort of universal terms because I'm struck now, um, and, and I'm not speaking just about the experience of viewers seeing this film as a kind of mirror inside Indonesia, because I'm struck that I'm releasing the look of silence in the United States after a particularly traumatic year in which our, uh, our open wound of race has recurred again and again and again uh, in very important and terrible ways. And thinking that really, in the, if in the first film we see the lies, fictions, and fantasies that any regime, any any political regime is built on, in the second film we see the, necess the necessity of confronting those lies so that we can actually mend the social fabric, I think they, there is a kind of complementary relationship, as you said. And also, Adi, it was Adi, who, the main character in The Look of Silence, who first encouraged me to film the perpetrators back in 2003. I began working on the 1965 genocide and its legacy uh, in collaboration with Adi Rukun and his family. And Adi was desperate to know what had been born after the genocide. He wasn't afraid, as afraid as the rest of his family. And he was desperate to understand what had happened to his parents to make them the way they are, to his whole family to make it the way it is, to his neighbors to make them the way they are, to his country to make, to, that, to make it the way his country, Indonesia, is. In a sense, he was trying to understand how he became himself. And he latched on to my filmmaking process as a way of finding himself somehow. Uh, he was raised in a family where he was seen by his mother very explicitly as the replacement of his older brother who was murdered. And in a sense that's very understandable and I feel nothing but love and empathy for Rohani, his mother, but in a way it also deprives him of a self. And I think he lat latched, grabbed on to my filmmaking as a way of finding himself and started gathering survivors from the neighborhood uh, whom he never knew were survivors. I mean, he didn't know, living in a small village, that every house around him, just two years before he was born, had lost one or two people. He never knew that. And he found that out through me and started to go and invite people to come tell me their stories. They would show up. He would bring them on the back of his bicycle to meet me. They were all elderly. There's a scene in the film where you see him bringing his mother in a similar way on the back of his bicycle. And some of them would come so moved, so 
emotional about telling their telling what ha- speaking openly about what happened for the first time that they would um arrive still on the bicycle crying and they t- would tell me in this very delicate state their stories and after 3 weeks the army came and threatened all of the survivors not to make the film and adi and some of the survivors called me to a secret meeting in their parents house at midnight and said don't give up try to film the perpetrators please don't go home you've learned the language you're here don't give up and i was afraid to approach the perpetrators at first i thought it could be dangerous i overcame that fear and did so starting with neighbors in this village and found to my horror really that they were immediately open i had figured planned all these ways i could get them to open up what could i say to them what neutral questions could i ask to slowly work the conversation around to the 60s and then to 1965 but it was unnecessary i would say what did you do for a living and within seconds they would be telling me the worst details of what they'd done and when i took this adi of course want having sent me to film this material he wanted to see it and when i took took it to him i think i came with this kind of my attitude i think the very first time if i remember was sort of i've come with footage of these men talking about monstrous things in monstrous ways with a sense of contempt and judgment of of course it's impossible not to judge what they've done but contempt and judgment for them and i played the footage for adi and he was uh, responded to it with an openness is the word that i would use a kind of calm openness because he was finding out what happened and he had to accept that these men were among him and he'd known some of the men his whole life and there was a sense that he refused to condemn them as human beings he refused to say these are monsters he was he refused and, and suddenly i i think i i felt a kind of shame that I, well, i can't see them that way and i think that therefore the re- the film is a film of close-ups and gazes and looking and and moments where people are responding to to words and and shame that comes with being confronted it, much more adi goes and confronts these men and much more important than the words or the reactions and when adi was looking at these men with such openness it 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 is a reaction but it's a reaction that also disarms us it deprives us of the reassuring hope that these men are monsters it's reassuring because if they're monsters we have nothing to do with them but while as primo levi said this very beautifully he said there may be monsters among us but they're too few to worry about and adi somehow understood that from the beginning that these men are 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 human and that is of course very uncomfortable because then we have to ask well what would i do if i grew up in that person's family what would my brother do if he grew up in that person's family what would my father do it was always men the perpetrators you don't have to ask what would your mother do um and but thinking that you and and we you quickly realize when you are forced to see these men through hardy's eyes that you might hope that if you grew up in their family in their time in in 1965 you would make different decisions you would hope that but we're very lucky most of us never to have to find out and once you overcome that uncomfortable realization that adi kind of forced me into then i was i came to recognize that actually this is the only hopeful way of looking at atrocity because when you 
Because if the perpetrators are monsters, all we can do is somehow uh, identify the monsters, identify the sociopaths, and somehow neutralize them or find ways of making sure that they have no opportunity to commit this kind of evil. But somehow, uh, if they're human, then we actually ought to be able to find ways of living together where we encourage the practice of the widest empathy and we encourage people to doubt what authority says. And maybe in those two ways, this kind of unthinkable violence could one day become unimaginable. How did you feel it helped you as, as a filmmaker being the outsider in the, in the equation? Um, because I, if I could just mention a later scene where um, Adi is questioning someone uh, and they say, Joshua never asked these deep questions, these deeper questions. Uh, and, and in that case, the killer is uncomfortable with being pressed. And I wondered, was, was Adi really asking harder questions than you were, or was it because it was him, it was Adi asking the questions? Well, um, uh, after Adi, after, I, I think there's a number of issues here. First of all, uh, first of all, I think there's something about the fact that Adi is trying, is, 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 for the most part, try showing that he's there not out of revenge and to understand and that he's try actually comes with empathy somehow makes it much more difficult for the perpetrators. Uh, when I heard the other day, when I heard just before I left uh, my home in Denmark on the radio, the, the relatives of the victims in Charleston forgiving the perpetrator, it was so devastating, but also so, so moving, but also so clear that this makes it much harder for the perpetrator. It doesn't make it easier. Maybe one day, once they can reconcile themselves to what they've done, it would become easier. But Im the immediate feeling is that now the perpetrator has to see his victims as human beings. And I think Adi, one of the reasons why it's difficult to have these, even if I were asking the same questions that Adi's asking, it's much harder to have them asked by Adi because Adi is showing that if they could only accept responsibility, he could forgive. And they're therefore forced to see his humanity and by extension, Ramli's, and by extension, everyone they, they killed. And in that moment, all of the lies that allow them to live with what they've done, which are predicated on dehumanizing their victims, somehow collapse, and they're forced to scramble for new lies. I mean, Amir Siaha'an, I'd filmed him before, that's the perpetrator. He's never uh, denied responsibility before. He's always, if anything, trying to claim responsibility. But here he's looking for a new, a new excuse, and he goes to denial, and then he moves quickly beyond that later in this scene and resorts to threats and to anger. And... Uh, so one of the, I think that part of this gaze, part of this humanizing reaction uh, that Adi, part of Adi's unwillingness to see them as anything other than human forces them to see Adi as human, and that forces for them a confrontation with their own conscience, which is analogous, perhaps, to the way that Anwar, and you see this much more, again, in the director's cut of The Act of Killing, but Anwar in The Act of Killing, after each... Uh, dramatization in the act in the director's cut you see him watching or after almost all of them a number of them you see him watching and con being confronted by his drama the dramatization feeling pain feeling doubt and running away from that uh, collapse of his facade or the wobble the, the, the fracturing of his facade running away from that by proposing an aesthetic improvement 
new costumes, a new genre, a new script, as though if he can fix the scene aesthetically, he can fix his past morally. And it's very analogous to how these men search for new excuses or uh, just get furious. And so I think that even if I were asking those questions, it would be very different coming from me. It would be much more of an intellectual debate. That's in the, of course, in the act of killing, I do ask difficult questions. You hear me ask Adi Zulkadri, the other death squad leader in the film, look, you've committed a crime against humanity. What if you were brought to The Hague? So it, it would be a mistake to see, uh, and I ask Anwar, I tell Anwar, at the end, you're not feeling what your victims feel because they were dying, whereas you're acting. So it would be a mistake to hear a perpetrator say, Joshua never asked such difficult questions in the look of silence as somehow an in, in offering insight into somehow the neutral or deceptive ways in which I made the act of killing. What it is reflecting is the fact that when I had filmed with these men before, the men Adi confronts, it was all in the two-year period from when Adi first encouraged me to film the perpetrators in 2003 up until 2005 when I first met Anwar Congo. And at that time, I was filming every perpetrator I could find on behalf, really, of Adi, his family, the broader community of survivors, and the human rights community as a whole, who all, all of whom had said, you must continue to film the perpetrators. You're onto something terribly important. Anyone who hears the way they're speaking will be forced to acknowledge that in a terrible way, the genocide hasn't ended, because the perpetrators are still in power, and everybody's living still today with fear. So I spent two years filming every perpetrator I could find. Anwar Congo was the 41st, and I lingered on him because it was through him that I really recognized the truth in Adi's assumption that all of the perpetrators are human. I could see that his boasting, Anwar's boasting, was a reaction to pain, that he was trying to banish pain that he couldn't quite, that was always haunting him, always chasing him when he was talking about and even uh, drama uh, demonstrating how he killed. And so somehow uh, I had, in that two-year period, I was trying to still figure out what happened, how it happened, where it happened. And I was filming these men that Adi's confronting for one day, one week. There's one family I filmed with for three months. But apart from them, I really had not asked deep questions because I didn't dare... Uh, be confrontational and have the whole process stop while I was just getting started and figuring out what happened, where, and how. Um, there was one other thing I wanted to say about the... Well, I mentioned about being an outsider. Uh, that was oh. the last thing, yeah. Yes, uh, of course, when I returned to Indonesia in 2012 to make this film, I didn't know Adi would be the main character in the film. I only knew he would be a main collaborator because it was he who had encouraged me to film the perpetrators and said you, and then would watch, and he'd spent the seven years that I was filming perpetrators watching everything I had time to show him. And when I finished editing the act of killing, I gave, when I, sorry, when I finished shooting the act of killing, I gave Adi a small camera to use as a notebook to look for images that might inspire the making of the second film. And I went home to uh, first London and then Denmark. I moved the middle to edit. And Adi would send me tapes throughout the editing. When I returned in early 2012 to shoot the look of silence, I didn't know he would be the main character. I just knew he'd be a key collaborator. We sat down and I said, what do you think we should do for the second film? And he said right away, I need to confront the men who've killed my brother. I've spent seven years watching your footage of the perpetrators. 
I need to meet these men and see if they can take responsibility. And I said reflexively, instantly, absolutely not. It's, there's never been a film. There's never been a film where survivors are confronting perpetrators who still are in power. It's too dangerous. And uh, Adi said to me, "Let me explain why it matters to me." And he went and he got the small the camera that I'd given him and one tape, and said, "I'm sorry, I never sent you this tape because it's very personal to me." And trembling, he put the tape in the camera, pressed play, and not. The scene came on the flip screen of this little camera, the, 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 the contents of the tape, and immediately he started to cry. And he showed me the one scene in the look of silence that Adi shot, and it's a scene where uh, his father, it's at the very end of the film, where his father's crawling through the house, through his own house, lost, thinking he's in the, a stranger's house, calling for help. And... Adi explained to me through his tears that this was the first day his father couldn't remember anybody in the family. And he was lost this day, lost all day, and they couldn't comfort him. They would try to comfort him and he would just feel more afraid because everybody was a stranger to him and they thought he thought they were coming, the family with people, his, he thought they were coming to hurt him. And so they just had to listen and bear him calling for help in his uh, dementia all day. And they, and it became unbearable for Adi said, to not be able to help. And eventually, not knowing what else to do, he picked up the camera and filmed his father. And the moment he started filming, he wasn't sure why he had that impulse, but the moment he started filming, he explained, I knew that I, I was filming because this is the day that it becomes too late for my father to heal. He's trapped in a kind of, he's forgotten the son whose murder destroyed his life, our family's life, but he hasn't forgotten the fear. And now he'll never work through this fear because he can't remember what happened. He'll never heal. He'll die in this prison of fear like a man, he said, locked in a room who can't even find the door, let alone the key. And then we watched the scene play out in silence. Hadi was... Uh, and then at the end of, the, at the, end of the, the tape finished, he said, you see, I don't want my children to inherit this prison of fear from my father, my mother and from me. And I think if I go and confront the perpetrators, but show that I'm there to forgive, if they can just take responsibility for what they've done, they will welcome this as kind of a long hoped for opportunity, an unconsciously hoped for opportunity to uh, make peace with their neighbors, to stop the manic boasting and accept what they've done is wrong and, and, and find, accept who they are, and somehow to find forgiveness from one of their victims' families. And Adi felt that in this way he could create a future for his children where they need not be afraid of their neighbors the way Adi and his parents are. And I was very moved by this and went back and talked to my crew and said, what do you think about this? And they said, you know something, Joshua? The production of the act of killing was very well known across this whole region of Indonesia and it hasn't screened yet. So people, and, and it, it shows you, were, and, and everyone knows you are working with some of the most powerful perpetrators in the country, some of the most powerful people in the country, the vice president of the country, the governor of the province, uh, ministers in the, in the cabinet. And the men Adi wants to meet are regionally powerful, but not nationally powerful. And they will not dare, or they're unlikely to dare, detain you, let alone physically attack you because they think you're close to their highest-ranking commanders. And so, finally, to answer your question, 
being an outsider was the only way this could have happened, and not not just being an outsider, but being an outsider who had made a was in the bizarre situation of having made a film like The Act of Killing, but not having screened it yet. That's what would allow us to do something utterly, I think, unprecedented, certainly in Indonesia, and I think in the history of cinema. And we, and yet we also always knew we would have to be prepared to abandon the shooting and abandon the film at any point if we ran into danger and we may have to evacuate the family and so forth. We were able to continue. We were able to bring the film out. We were able to bring it out widely in Indonesia, with uh, though it was part of the plan from early on that Adi's family would move to another part of Indonesia to make sure that they remain safe. And a plan B, that they come to Europe if they receive, were to receive any threats. The film's been out for uh, the better part over eight months and has been seen very, very widely, and they have not received, received threats. Um, one of the things you mentioned just now was, you know, Adi's parents and, and the father with dementia, and that's a hugely powerful part of the movie, I think, um, because it brings in the generational aspect and how things change with generations, which kind of links up with what you were talking about in terms of problems with race in this country, you know, where it's it's often a generational thing that, the, that you get some sort of progress of understanding um, whether people you know, uh, stand in the way of it or not. Um, so the generational aspect of the look of silence, uh, it's something that's woven into the editing scheme, I think. Really, you have this rhythm of always re- of returning to Adi's home with, with, uh, with his parents um, and then, you know, interspersing sometimes with his, his own uh, daughter. In the film, of course, whatever hope there is does come from younger people and from the next generation. But at the same time, whatever truth and reconciliation may come, whatever justice may come, in part, as a, in part as a result of these two films. And the debate triggered by the look of silence has led the Indonesian government to now introduce a truth and reconciliation bill into parliament, a woefully inadequate one, but it's, a, it's an important milestone nonetheless. Whatever may come, it's, it is too late for Adi's father. And when I said this is a... I see the film as a poem in memoriam to all that's destroyed... It's to say that until we can turn around and honor that, and not just honor the dead, but honor the lives broken by fear, and really accept that as part of the legacy of impunity, one can't expect things to get better in the future going forward, which is why how many generations are we after slavery, and even after the end of formal segregation in this country, and still we have these, these, this terrible open and festering wound. I thought maybe we could open it up to some questions from the audience at this point. Uh, does anyone have any questions? Hi. Um, <clears throat> I was wondering, when within the timeline of you uh, being in Indonesia, did you learn the language? And if that was a large obstacle for you to understand your documentary subject outside of being just a documentary on the uh, 1965 genocide? I learned the uh, Indonesian when I first went to Indonesia in 2001. I was asked to help a group of plantation workers to teach them how to make their own film about their struggle to organize a union in the aftermath of the Suharto dictatorship. And uh, I found that they, that that was actually through that work how I came across the 1965 genocide. The women were forced on this Belgian plantation to spray herbicides and pesticides with no protective clothing. 
and the mist was getting into their lungs, and then one of the herbicides was so toxic that it would reach their liver via their blood, of course, and dissolve the fabric of their liver tissue, and the women were dying in their 40s. And one of the first things they did as a union was to approach the company and ask for masks and full protective clothing, and the company responded by hiring the paramilitary group in the act of killing. And the workers just dropped their demands in fear instantly. And I realized, they, they then explained, our parents were killed by this group with the army in 1965 because they were in the National Plantation Workers Union, and just for that, they were seen as likely opponents to the dictatorship, and they were the new dictatorship, and they were killed, and they were afraid this could happen again. And that, that was, I, I realized what was killing these women I was working with and living with was not just poison, but also fear. And that was what led me to do this work. And it was at that time in that six, those six months that I was there that I, I don't know why, I, I learned, I just, I, I learned Indonesian then and it improved over the coming trips. I think it, has been, it is very important to make film with a place, from a place of real int- intimacy with people. And knowing the language certainly helps. I don't think it's an insurmountable obstacle necessarily, but it's a pretty big one if you don't speak the language. That said, <laughs> that said, I think that film is a terrible medium for words. And one of the things I was thinking about, I think it's a medium for silence, for doubt, for subtext, for moments where people don't believe the words they're saying. And in both these films, certainly in the uncut version of The Act of Killing, you have, much, you have all this time, which is missing from the shorter cuts, for Anwar's doubt, for his evolving sense sense of doom, that what he's, he'll never escape his guilt. And in The Look of Silence... Uh, Less so, perhaps, in the clip you, the first clip we showed, uh, because that was a, such a powerful perpetrator that we did not dare to set up two cameras because we thought we may have to run away and wouldn't have time to break down a second camera. But in general, I'm filming with two cameras, one like this and the other complementary, so that I can capture as, and focus on as much as possible the reactions, the shame, the silences, and not the words. I, I made a study in preparing for the film of the films of uh, Yasujiro Ozu, uh, who, and also, uh, for a different reason, maybe I'll come to in a second, Robert Bresson, because I think these are two filmmakers who really work with silence. It, they, they make films where everything important is happening in the silences, in moments where it seems like nothing is happening, but everything is happening. In uh, Ozu's films, in the dialogue scenes, everything is being spoken, not through the words, but through shame and embarrassment and and... Uh, and terrible sadness that's speaking through silence. And in Bresson, and it relates to the last clip we saw, I tried to find a way of haunting the landscape. So the cricket sounds you heard is actually, is actually we, we drained all of the sound out of the shots and out of the dialogue scenes. We cleaned it up with 10 weeks of audio post-production, which is, and then a six-week mix, which is about what you would have for a, a fiction film to remove all of the background sounds, sounds that maybe in, in normal, in a sort of, uh, uh, in a work of direct cinema would be seen as adding authenticity. Of course they draw your attention to the environment, but I don't want to draw your attention to the environment except when I want to. I don't want you to be thinking about the passing motorbike or what kind of, what a bus sounds like or what the ice cream van sounds like while you're watching these very tender interactions. I want you to feel, be in those spaces as Adi is and as as the perpetrator is, which is 
more honest to experience. It's to filter all those sounds out and be with feelings. And so I we cleaned out all the sound. And then for the, the long shots, these sort of long haunted tableaus that the one part of the film we shot at the same time as the long haunted landscapes in the director's cut of The Act of Killing, we created from 16 tracks of different kinds of crickets, sometimes a solo cricket that's trilling, kind of bop, 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 and sometimes a whole chorus of crickets. We worked with them like a symphony. Again, actually, uh, Robert Bresson said something beautiful about this. He said, do not, use a, a you do not use a score. Let the sounds be the score. And we kind of created a score out of, this, out of the cricket sounds. And... Um, when we were in very intimate moments where you're close to uh, uh, one of Adi's parents, it tends to be just one, almost, almost exclusively one solo cricket sound with almost no reverberation on it so that we feel like the presence of Ramli's ghost whispering, almost whispering in the ear of, of Adi's mother or father, whereas in the wide shots that come out of these confrontations where you feel the general the fact that the ghosts are abroad and their gaze is everywhere but unfocused, then there's, it's a whole chorus of crickets with, with different layers of rever reverb. So these are, these are, I know, not related to the question of language, but when, you when I was saying that I think you don't necessarily need to know the language, I was also thinking that the most important part of cinema is not the words. Did you have this feeling that there is a very mm, uh, thin line between a victim and a criminal, uh, because I think uh, in most of genocides that happen in history, the people that committed those genocides, uh, most of them were regular citizens, that they, they, were, they were in a situation that uh, this kind of devil part of human came out and they committed all these crimes. Well, um, I think that, that every perpetrator I've filmed is human, and they live their life in perpetual manic flight from this pall of guilt that follows them everywhere they go and they boast in order to make the, the, the uh, they, they, and this, this fear insinuates itself into their nightmares, uh, sorry, into their dreams, into their sleep, giving them horrific nightmares that wake them up. And in, in flight from this pall of guilt and shame, they do ultimately the human thing. They've never been removed from power, so they still have available to themselves this victor's history that celebrates what they've done. And so they take these rotten, bitter memories of atrocity, uh, and they try to sugarcoat them in the sweet language of a victor's history to uh, that, that, that would celebrate what they've done so that they can live with themselves, so that they can swallow those memories. And in that sense, um, that, in that sense, we can understand why, they're, why, first of all, they're boasting so insistently, so persistently. Uh, it's, of course, because they, they, uh, th that Paul is always right there. They're, they're in manic flight from it all the time. And it's also why, of course, uh, they're always boasting about the most unseemly details, the most grisly details, things you can't imagine someone boasting about. It's because those are precisely the most bitter memories and difficult memories for them to swallow. The Indonesian genocide is a little bit unique. I don't know if it's completely, I'm sure it's not wholly unique, but it's different from uh, the Khmer Rouge genocide. It's different from the Rwandan genocide uh, in that it didn't take place, in a, it's different from the Holocaust, and then it didn't take place in the context of war. And the perpetrators 
there was no military discipline. There was no, it, 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 there was no martial law which could be used to threaten people as there was in the, for example, in Cambodia where people were told, you know, you participate or else you'll be the victim. The perpetrators I filmed were not forced to par participate. They were incited, they were rewarded, they were paid, they were given promotions, they were given power. Uh, and in that sense, they did this thing that I think we've all experienced in one way or another. They've betrayed their individual morality to participate in a group with perhaps the thought, well, if the group is doing it and if the state says it's okay, maybe it is okay. And Yes, of course. It could happen to anybody, right? The victims just happen to be the victims. I don't think the victims were the victims because they were better people inherently. They just were not in that position. And um, one of the... And, and in, in that sense, I, you know, I, I think one of the things we see from all of the perpetrators, or at least I feel about all of the perpetrators, and I think you certainly see it in Anwar at the end of the act of killing, is that these men may have escaped justice, but they haven't escaped punishment. They also, they've destroyed themselves in a way by doing what they've done. Lives that could have been better. Um, I'm a dream researcher, so I was struck when you referred to the first film as a fever dream and to the um, perpetrator's nightmares just now. So my question is how much you explicitly in the interviews ask people about post-traumatic nightmares or other dreams they were having about this, and if not, whether they just spontaneously mentioned these, and then how you thought about whether to use any of this as actual footage, and if not, how it did or didn't inform any, anything else more informally. That's such a wonderful intervention or question. Um, uh, there's a whole section in the act of killing and a whole and it's a, it's longer again in the uncut version of the film where Anwar tells me tells about his nightmares his uh, and you can see that uh, he, he he dreams of uh, he, he takes me to this rubber plantation in the middle of the night and in the uncut version of the film you see him go through this very strange reenactment in one shot or of, and he normally I would say that they're not reenacting they're dramatizing the present day lies and stories and fantasies they tell themselves so they can live with themselves because reenactment is about acting out, excavating the past in some way. It's the difference between uh, a scene or a film about the past and one about the present. But in this particular scene, Anwar reenacts his nightmare. And he, or, or what he, no, he, in fact, he reenacts a moment that he's insisting is the source of his nightmares, where he's uh, playing both perpetrator and victim. So he's playing the victim stumbling forward as he's being led to the place where he's about to be killed, and then crumples over as though he's just been kicked, but then does the kick, shows the kick to the man's stomach, and then he puts his head, or it leans his head on the stump of a rubber tree and acts the victim as he's having his head cut off. Uh, making uh, reenacting this sound that he thinks is in his that he, he he thinks is the source of his dreams, and then he says that he was so afraid when he saw that that he ran away uh, without closing the eyes of the victim, and that that's the source of all his nightmares. And of course, in a way, he's lying to himself there, but still grappling 
with his pain. He's lying to himself in that that was one of a thousand people he killed. Who knows if that's the source of his nightmares? Sure, uh, and then, and then there's a whole series of scenes where uh, we see, um, in, in both all versions of the act of killing, where we see the Indonesian state t- television soap opera studios cheapening his nightmares, taking them and using them as a basis for fictionalization, for dramatization, totally draining them of their obvious moral meaning, which is that he's suffering from trauma. And in a way, I, I doubt that there's a real difference that's beyond semantic between trauma and guilt that we can really pin down, in this case, when you're talking about perpetrator's trauma. And he... Um, and and so so yes, the simple answer is yes, and it was crucial for the process because once he started talking about his dreams, I was able to open up to him about the nightmares that the process was giving me. And therefore, from that, my own feelings about Anwar and what he'd done, and that mirroring to him, that sense that I was accepting his uh, stories about what he'd done, telling him honestly that I thought it was horrible, and still accepting him as a human being was, I think, what that the tension there is what, and, and also the comfort that he got from being able to tell his story and still be seen as a human being is what fueled the whole process. And one of the things that when I said the film is, I, I think I said the director's cut of The Act of Killing is a fever dream. What I had in mind there is some kind of experience I have of my own dreams, which is the way one thing sort of bleeds into another in a strange a strange way where someone becomes someone else and a place turns into another place over the course of a night. And then we kind of forget it all as soon as we wake up. And I had a feeling that uh, in the last half of the director's cut of The Act of Killing, Anwar is moving from one persona to another that allows him to live with himself. And they're mutually contradictory. So the persona of Anwar is the glamorous film noir anti-hero who's evil, Anwar embraces it because he's no longer able to deny his guilt. He starts, uh, and so despairingly, he throws himself into that persona. And that troubles him and frightens him. And in reaction to it, he swings the other way and imagines this kind of glorious redemption for himself in heaven at this waterfall scene where Born Free is playing and there's uh, dancing girls and there's a, and there's one of his victims waiting for him in heaven with a medal to give him... Uh, to to give him a medal to thank him for kill and thank and he thanks him for killing him and sending him to heaven. The victim thanks Anwar, and it's absurd and it's false. But I've tried to make each of these different stories, narratives, persona, lies, fantasies that Anwar tells himself. I've tried to film them with as much power and force as possible, so that instead of them being instead of the waterfall scene looking like a kitsch and tacky karaoke video from. Uh, Indonesia or Thailand, where we would be sneering at Anwar, we are swept up in its majesty, even if it's also tragic, disgusting, and kitsch. And so we are swept along by the very things that move Anwar. We go with him on that journey from uh, fantasy to uh, person- from fantasy to nightmare, from one dream, from one persona to an opposite persona, in the same way that we slip from one dream state to another, from one part of a dream to another part of a dream. And I've tried to prolong, to sort of slow this process down, what, what, we, what might occur to us in a very short span of time while sleeping, or what might occur that the uh, or what might occur for Anwar, moving from one lie to another, to one fantasy, to another fantasy that contradicts that fantasy. 
uh, one persona to another might occur to him in, over the course of one hour or one afternoon or maybe even 10 minutes in a particularly rocky moment for him. And I've tried to use this apparatus or, or this, this, this uh, tool of screening back to him to slow that process down in a visible way. So Anwar throws himself into one fantasy. We are moved by that fantasy. He watches it, reacts to it, out of either out of fright or guilt or a desire to embellish, and proposes the next fantasy. And then we're t taken away by that fantasy, and he watches it. And this re recursive process of... Uh, performing and fantasizing, dreaming, if you like, and then watching, and then launching into the next one and watching, allows, I think, the film to uh, slow down over the course of months of shooting what Anwar might go through within one afternoon. And in the second half of the film, particularly the second half, certainly the last third, those fantasies were able to read them, were able to understand where in Anwar they come from, and they're able to take over the film's form. We no longer need the screening between them, and it becomes like we kind of toboggan through uh, one, one fantasy to another, and it really, and they take over with all the poetic force that I was able to give them, and it becomes truly a kind of fever dream, mimicking as best I could the phenomenology or the experience of, of dreams. This is more of a personal nature uh, a question. It is like, what did you want to do when you grew up? Apparently, you uh, you you have this vision apparently uh, of injustice somehow. Was this something personal in your life that you experienced injustice that you wanted to somehow ameliorate that later on? And when did you decide that it would be uh, spatial imagery as opposed to writing or music or, or or performing to to be the vehicle for your artistry? It's brilliant, incidentally. I think that... Um, or was it, the last part, was it something external that you saw and you said, for some it's reason... It's a difficult I, question I for me to answer oh, just okay. tonight because I have two of my brothers here. And so it's sorry like, how does one know? Sorry about um, that. No, but it's not about them and there's nothing, 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 uh, nothing that I wouldn't... It's just it's per, like first talking about your childhood in front of witnesses to your childhood is... Can't make anything up. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I think I'm sensitive to the demands of people's faces, to the demands of people's uh, gaze, their looks. I try to, I, I think that's just me. I, it could have to do with things about my childhood, but that's always been me. I think I also grew up in a family where I sort of feel like I under, knew about the Holocaust before I knew the Cinderella story. Uh, my father's family and my stepmother's family uh, had lost especially my stepmother's family, a lot of people in the Holocaust, but even from my father's family, they, my, father, my grandparents on my father's side were born in Germany and left just sort of before it was too late. And there was, I definitely grew up with this sense from my father that the aim of all politics and maybe even the aim of culture is to prevent these things from happening again in the widest sense, never again to anybody. And I went to university not to do... Uh, to, to be out of a to study theoretical physics and cosmology, I had this curiosity about the nature of being and consciousness, and was fascinated by how, in quantum mechanics, consciousness is actually perhaps a physical principle that observing something consciously affects something what you're observing, and even instantaneously through what's called spooky action at a distance, uh, objects light years away, and I. Uh, 
but it was a boring time in physics where we were being channeled into engineering and applied physics because there was no data yet from the Hubble Space Telescope, there was no string theory yet, and the big particle accelerators weren't really up and running yet. So there was not much happening in theoretical physics. I moved into philosophy a little bit and discovered that I was interested, and I always had this, I had this hobby, I, I never thought of this, but it's so obvious now that I think of it. I had this hobby for acting in theater, and what motivated that was not a love of the theater, but a desire to know what it feels like to be someone else. And uh, even very early uh, drug experimentation when I was 13 with uh, magic mushrooms was about trying to like perceive the world in another way. And I think I, um, I, I somehow, yeah, I think that well, that fried me enough that I don't have the rest of the answer. But You're in the middle of a flashback now. <laughs> no, see, I, I think I remember. I, I, then, I, then, I then moved into, so I moved from physics into philosophy. I then felt that this, these questions are actually about experience, not words. And I started moving into film as a way of exploring these most mysterious aspects of what we are. And I still don't think of myself as a storyteller who know, wants to know what the story is when I start a film, I see myself as exploring some of the most vexing and mysterious questions, gathering material that I want to, uh, that is ideally as multi-layered and itself mysterious as possible. For example, when Anwar plays the victim or when, that, uh, when Enong in the trailer has the red glasses on his face and he's telling and he's being uh, confronted by Adi. These are images with many layers of meaning, and I even see the editing, most of it, the first half of it, as excavating the layers of meaning in the material, and then trying not to, this is why I have no trouble cleaning out all the background sound and putting in new background sound, because I think my task is not to report to you faithfully and chronologically what happened in the shooting, particularly if that gets in the way of distilling for you and creating for you an immersive poetic experience, experience that allows you to feel, to experience whatever insights, whatever wisdom I've gathered through the exploration. Now when I say I'm exploring, I'm looking, I'm guided always by some kind of vision. And I don't, but, but it's a mysterious thing, vision. Um, you said you had been... Uh or you, you said you had talked to the family, you know, in the instance that they do receive threats, you might be able to move them to Europe. I was wondering if in the wake of uh, these films being released, uh, especially in Indonesia, um, have you been in contact with or been made aware of any of the reactions of the perpetrators, um, having maybe seen these films or having heard the public reaction to these films? I'm in touch with Anwar still. Anwar and I remain close, uh, and I haven't told him to see the film. I know that he uh, knows about it. He congratulated me on it. He's wished me well for it, but he hasn't asked to see it. And since I'm not there to support him through that experience, which would sort of force him inevitably to reassess or to understand our relationship as uh, being within a bigger sphere of relationships and my relationship to the survivors, I feel like I, I would need to be there. I, would, I wouldn't suggest that he see it unless he asked. If he asked to see it, we would make it possible. Um, certainly the highest ranking perpetrators in the country have reacted negatively to the film. The film, uh, the, the act of killing began its life in Indonesia in secret. Uh, and people, we held secret screenings at the National Human Rights Commission for Indonesia's leading journalists, uh, celebrities, filmmakers, and 
all of them immediately embraced the act of killing. In fact, the editor of Indonesia's leading news magazine called me the next day and said, I saw your film yesterday. I've been censoring stories about this genocide for as long as I've been in this job. I won't do it anymore because I don't want to grow old as a perpetrator like Anwar. And he gathered 60... Uh, he said, we're going to break our silence on the genocide in a, way that in a big way that shows your film is a repeatable experiment, that it could have been made anywhere in the world. And he gathered 60 journalists to uh, go to corners of Indonesia where no one had ever even re researched the killings, as well as places where it was well known the killings had taken place, and look for perpetrators who would boast. And they gathered a 1,000 pages of boastful uh, testimony within two weeks, they published 75 pages of it, plus 25 pages about the act of killing in a double edition of the magazine. And in one, f it sold out through three printings because Indonesians were astonished that this founding crime, this founding atrocity of the current political system that no one could ever talk about, but everyone knew was somehow there, was being talked about openly. Uh, it, it, so, and in one fell swoop, Tempo magazine broke the Indonesian media's silence on the genocide. The rest of the media followed suit and started talking about the genocide as a genocide and the regime of gangsters and thugs that the perpetrators have built and it still is there today. As a result of that, uh, the screenings went public quickly. There were then, in the end, thousands of screenings of the act of killing. We put it online. It was downloaded millions of times. When it was nominated for an Academy Award, the president's office in Indonesia made a statement saying, we know what happened in 1965 was a crime against humanity, and we know we need truth and reconciliation, but we don't need a film to make us do it. So they, it didn't matter. It was a great statement because they finally were admitting it was wrong. And into the space opened by the act of killing came the look of silence with a much wider release than the act of killing could possibly have had. It's, it's distributed by two government bodies, the National Human Rights Commission and the Jakarta Arts Council, something unthinkable with the act of killing. The first screening on uh, November 10th, 2014, was held in the largest theater in Indonesia with billboards advertising it in Jakarta. 3,000 people came. They had to put on two screenings because the venue had a capacity of 1,500. Adi came to both screenings and received a 15-minute standing ovation for his courage. And it was National Heroes Day, November 10th, and trending on Twitter in Indonesia and therefore around the world, because Indonesia is the world's largest Twitter-using country. Uh, trending on Twitter was, we have a new national hero and his name is Adi Rukun. That provided cover for the widest release we could have imagined, given that it wasn't in commercial cinemas, because we didn't want to provoke a ban. Uh, the film came out on, a month later with 500 public screenings on the first day. Now we're at over 3,500. I should say on the first day of public screenings, Senator Tom Udall here in the United States introduced a sense of the Senate resolution saying, look, this, this was in response to his experience watching the act of killing, look, what happened in 1965 was a crime was a crime against humanity, and the United States was part of it. And we, 50 years is too long for us not to take responsibility. We need to declassify all the documents that reveal what we did, why we did it, how we did it, and, to, and, and apologize. Anyways, there's now been over 3,500 public screenings. The film was called across most of the Indonesian media the film of the year last year because of the impact it was making, because of the discussion about it was le leading everyone who saw it to say we need truth and reconciliation, including relatives of perpetrators who were, I think, moved by the daughter of one perpetrator in the film who with great dignity and humanity apologizes. And 
This provoked a kind of backlash, I presume from some of the highest ranking perpetrators in the act of killing, who may have seen the film, may not, but started paying thugs to threaten to disrupt screenings and then using that as an excuse to demand screenings be canceled. So the military would hire the thugs and then say you should cancel the screening. About 30 screenings were canceled that way. They also pressured the film censorship board to formally ban the film from commercial cinema distribution. It's banned now. Nevertheless, community screenings continue uh, as much as before. And uh, the, 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 the thugs stopped coming after a group of students barricaded themselves into their university campus in Jogjakarta, a major city in central Java, uh, and, said, and, and went ahead with a screening that was so widely praised in the media that suddenly, suggesting a national policy from military intelligence, all of the threats from paramilitary groups stopped. An army... Uh, the sort of last couple things. An army general then ordered his soldiers to watch the film. And there were these surreal pictures on Facebook of hundreds and hundreds of uh, soldiers in die straight lines sitting cross-legged on the floor watching The Look of Silence. There was no statement as to why they were asked to watch it, but I assume any of, any of them would have come away as moved as any other Indonesian from the film. And then uh, the Indonesian Association of History Teachers has written an alternative school curriculum now to, so that they can teach the official story and then say, that's what we have to teach you, and this is the truth. And that involves for secondary school students showing my two films. And now, as I said earlier, there's a truth and reconciliation bill in the parliament and rumors of a presidential apology at the next State of the Union address. So obviously all of that has happened because the perpetrators are seeing the film and, and somehow calculating their response. It's really fascinating about the school curriculum because there's a scene, I mean, there are aspects in the look of silence where you learn about what's, what's taught. <laughs> um, um, but uh, you can all see it for yourself. The look of silence opens tomorrow. Uh, and we've only really scratched the surface here of everything going on in it. Um, Joshua, thank you so much. Thank you. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.com, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.com. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.